Last week, I ended with this, and we're going to start there today. The, I'm going to leave you there. The law reveals what we are not, what we lack, where the problem is, how broken we are. It reveals our false self. It is not capable of making us better, much less of revealing our true self. The law. What do we do with it? I mean, we have to obey, right? I was talking with the kids about the, the importance of law and rules within their own household, and we all understand that. But what's at stake between each of us and God in terms of, in terms of rules and laws, that's a lot more. I mean, is, is my eternal destiny, my my place, my purpose, my happiness in this world, dependent on how obedient I am to God? Is he watching and keeping score? And if the score is high, then life goes better. And to some extent, that is certainly true. But is that what it's all about? These commands. Which ones, by the way? If you were to read your Old Testament and start studying the law of Moses, as Paul keeps referring to, you're going to find hundreds of rules. Some of them are obscure to us because the culture and the time and the place was so different, we don't understand the rules. Other rules were admittedly way ahead of their time. God gave the the Israelites rules about things like um, being clean with washing your hands and um, taking care of meat so it doesn't rot and and, and infectious disease to to separate people so it doesn't spread among the community. And and that was way before mankind knew much of anything about uh, the biology behind it all. But... All of these rules, they can become overwhelming if that's what we base our relationship with God upon, on how well we know the rules and how well we are carrying them out. That is a trap. That is a mistake. So I'm going to do this kind of a little exercise here, but I'm I'm going to talk with God, and you're going to listen in on this conversation about rules. Okay, Lord, here's the commandments, the 10. This has got to be the middle. This has to be the center of all, all the commands, right? This is the most important. And if it's okay with you, Lord, I, I took the liberty of putting them in my own words, all right? So this is the 10 commandments, PPV, Pastor Paul version. Now, I'm, I'm respectful of, of the way they're really written, so they're, in essence, I think they're the same, but I want to see, God, how am I doing? So, so be honest with me, and I'll try to be honest with you, and hopefully I'll get a good score when this is done. Does 7 out of 10 give me an A or a B, or is that passing? I, I don't know. How's, how's that going to work? Well, you can let me know, Lord, but number one, worship no other gods. Well, I haven't gone to another kind of sanctuary, temple, building 
to worship something. I haven't bowed down to an idol, you know, some kind of ugly graven thing, wherever. So I think I'm doing okay there. But to be honest, sometimes things in my life can become gods to me. So where I've done that, I'm sorry. Something very simple and subtle like sports can become a god to me and sometimes has. Yeah, that wasn't good, God. I'm sorry. Of course, money. Got to be careful of that one always. That will suck you in right away. I don't want that to be a god. And even more subtle things like prestige or position or power or being noticed by others. My, my own identity can become my God. So I craft myself to look good before other people 24-7 so that I can receive compliments and accolades and praises, and you're supposed to get that, not me. So forgive me, God, for worshiping other gods, because sometimes I do. Well, the second one, bow down to no images or idols, no graven images. Don't even make them. Images? <laughs> Have you seen this world lately, Lord? We got screens everywhere. There's one right now. <laughs> we go to the movies, they're massive screens with big thundering sound and it shakes the floor. And you have little screens that you can, you can carry the movies with you everywhere now. And other images, and they're all over the place. Images and some of them are beautiful and inspiring, and some of them are horrible. Some of them suck people into addictive ways and, and hurtful patterns, and images are everywhere, Lord. And, and again, the idols thing, it's, it's idols of the heart, the things I already admitted, Lord. Sometimes I'm, I'm getting sucked into to, to idol worship. One I didn't mention was sometimes people can become idols to us. We're supposed to love our spouse. We're supposed to love our children, our parents, our, our friends. And yet no person should ever replace you, God. No person is God. So I, for any time that I put a, I, I put a person in my life, into the position of God and expecting God-like things from him or her, well, they become an idol to me, an image to me, and I'm sorry. So this isn't off to a very good start, is it? All right, number three, use God's name respectfully. In King James, don't use the Lord's name in vain, all right? What does that mean? I've always been... I think pretty good with this, Lord. I, I hear people say the name of your son, Jesus Christ. In this setting, hopefully, the vast majority of the time, it is a way to honor him, to learn about him, to, to worship him. But sometimes I hear people say Jesus Christ, and they are not thinking about the ways of God or God or the Son of God who died for them. They're using it almost like an expletive. And it breaks my heart when I hear people do that, but it's really not my place to, to scold them and correct them either. 
Um, sometimes perhaps I can say something subtly, hopefully, but I, I'm thankful that I haven't done that. And yet there's something about the name of God that is more than just what we utter with our lips, more than, than, than saying the name Jesus Christ with our vocal cords. It is, I mean, go into this book, and what does it say about the name of Jesus? Like, what is due to the name of Jesus? Revelation is filled with these really mysterious and strange and wonderful and powerful descriptions of the throne of heaven and how all of heaven and these creatures and, and people from all history worship the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. His name contains so much. And so I want to be respectful of His name, not just by how I say it, but with my life that if, if I am a follower of Jesus, if in any sense Christ is in me, then I should be honoring his name with my life. And so hopefully I'm doing that more often than not, Lord, but yeah, sometimes I foul up when I'm tired and impatient and I say stupid things and do stupid things that, that are dishonoring to your name, even if I didn't say the name Jesus Christ in a disrespectful manner, I can still break this commandment like that. Ugh, this isn't going good. All right, number four, keep the Sabbath. Here I am, it's Sunday, I'm at church. Well, technically, this isn't the Sabbath. Ugh, thought I had that one. Now, what you may know is that the church, very early on in its history, took the day of worship called Sabbath in Scripture, the seventh day, what we call Saturday. They moved that day to Sunday after the death and resurrection of Jesus because Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week on a Sunday. There are some believers and followers in Jesus who still stick with Saturday. Not that many, honestly, in the whole scope of all Christianity. Uh, you may have friends who are Seventh-day Adventists. Okay, that's their thing. Seventh day, the Sabbath day, right? There isn't direct scriptural evidence that the church officially moved the day of worship from, from Saturday to Sunday in the Bible. There's hints at it here and there. And if you're interested in that, I can show you. But um, the point is, I think the larger point is that there's a day that we set aside for God, in very tangible ways, and most Christians, it's Sunday. And so, if you get up on Sunday and come to church, that's one way of, of honoring and respecting and carrying through the heart of this commandment to keep the Sabbath. But I think it runs deeper than that. Even if an additional part of whether or not you go to worship is also what Sabbath rest does for your body, does for your mind, does for your heart. We are designed to work, and we should work, but we are also designed that we need rest. Physically, you need rest. And to take one day out of seven and not work, not in, in, in the sense of 
whatever it is that you do for your living, take a day where you're not doing that, and you're doing things you enjoy, doing things that, um, that are life-giving to you, that are enriching to you, inspiring to you, restful to you. It might be taking a nap all afternoon. When I was a kid, uh, we went to church every Sunday, and then um, mom made a big dinner. Sunday dinner was the noon meal when we got home, okay? And then my dad would turn on the Phillies and fall asleep. And, um, or sometimes we'd go out in a nice day like today. We might go out and play ball together, go for, go for a little walk. Um, so there was restful things that we would do together as a family, and I love that. And I hope that you have that practice. If it's not Sunday, then find another time in your life, in your family life, where the, the regular routine of every day is, is disrupted and paused most importantly, to focus more intently on God and the ways of God, but then also to give yourselves a break because you need it. So, Lord, I think I'm doing pretty good with that one, but sometimes I, I do overdo it. But, all right, let's go to number five, honor mom and dad. I am honored. Today's Mother's Day, so we honor mothers, and I'm honored and, and, and thankful that my mom is still with me. I, I plan to go see her this afternoon, and she's 94 years old. And so is my dad. He'll be 94 next month. And so the fact that they're here at all and doing fairly well health-wise for 94-year-olds uh, is, is such a, an incredible blessing. And I want to honor them with my life. I want to live in such a way that, that makes them happy, makes them smile, and it does. And I, I'm glad for that. And, and I'm thankful that, um, that God blessed me with people that are easy to honor. It's not hard to honor Eugene and Elsie Miller. Um, they're beautiful people and I love them. I'm thankful. And, um, but for, for a lot of us, maybe mom and dad was, is a hard issue, one or the other. And um, maybe they weren't there for you. Uh, and it could have been even worse than that. So this one's a little harder and Mother's Day could be really hard for a lot of people. And so this is something that I pray, God, that you know, help each of us to um, understand the importance of family. And that's kind of about the heart of what this is saying. Because when, when children honor their parents, that is the, the foundation of a stable home life, right there. When children are honoring and respectful of their parents, that is the beginning of a safe environment, a loving environment, an environment that, that you can grow up in and prosper from and be blessed by. So this one really is very important. By the way, the first four of these were all about our relationship with God. This, the next six, five through ten, are about our relationship with others, and the first one is this, about family. So it's a good place to start. Okay, a little better on that, Lord. How about number six? Don't kill anyone. Whew, I'm good. <laughs> Thought about it. But then Jesus had to go and give the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, if you hate anyone from your heart, it's as if you have killed them. Whoa, Jesus, wait a minute. You mean to say that 
You see that in your eyes as bad as murder? At the heart level, yes. Whoa. Hate. There's very few murders, murders that have ever occurred that didn't begin with hate somewhere. Sometimes a murder is an impulsive thing, and maybe the hate wasn't even for that person, but there's hate in them that, that gets let out, and the wrong person's in the way at the wrong time. But that's the level that Jesus takes this to. So at the heart level, I'm not doing as well with that one as I thought. And, and even the next one is the same. Don't cheat on your spouse. I've never done that, but Jesus also says, if you've lusted after another woman, at the heart level, that's just as bad as committing adultery. And, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's happened. We have a whole, those, those images I talked about a moment ago with screens everywhere, so much of those images is, is intentionally filled with lustful images, lust drawing out of us to, in order to buy a product, or, or worse yet, the whole monstrous and horrible industry of pornography and what that does to people and to, to lives and to families and to our culture. And we're just seeing that spill out in its ugly fashion every day. And so I can't get off that easy with that one. And so lust is, is, can, can really grab your heart and even addict you to it if you're not careful. Well, how about number eight? Don't take what doesn't belong to you. Thou shalt not steal. I think it's, it's, it's good to look at it that way because when you say thou shalt not steal, it sounds like, okay, I'm not a thief. I'm not one of those guys sitting in prison because he stole a car or stole, robbed the bank or you know, shoplifted $800 worth of stuff at Walmart or whatever. Um, stealing runs deeper than that, doesn't it? If it doesn't belong to me, I shouldn't have it. I shouldn't take it. And, and, and that, there's even more subtle ways with that. We, we, we take from people. We take time from people, rob them. Time is, is such a precious commodity. And just a, a small example, I was, um, years and years ago, I was in a bank in a long line, which doesn't happen much anymore, thankfully, but <laughs> online banking and drive throughs and whatnot. But there was a long line inside the bank. I was waiting to do whatever, cash check or something. So it was like 15 people. And so none of us want to be in that line, but okay, we're all patiently waiting. And then this guy came in, he looked at the line, kind of went, oh man, he's grumbling there and sitting in the back of the line. Well, the, the teller got done with the person at the window, and the next person wasn't paying attention. She was having a conversation with the person behind her. And in that little interim where that person left and no one went immediately to, he bolted up from the back of the line, went to the teller. And the teller shouldn't have been put into that position where to have to tell him, naughty boy, get to the back of the line. And you could tell she felt awkward and just went ahead and did that. He robbed everybody in that line. He stole. He took something that didn't belong to him. Those minutes that, that we have to wait, he took from us. So, so is there other subtle ways, God, that, that I'm guilty of taking what doesn't belong to me for selfish reasons? Yeah, I do that. 
Number nine is, in Scripture, it says, don't bear false witness. I'm going to put it this way. Don't lie about people. Now, the, the intent of the, that command is, is important, especially in a legal system where if you're called to be a witness, then, as we say in, in our judicial system, you, you come to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You're going to be a truthful witness about what you know, about what you saw and heard. And so that's important, obviously. But we don't sit on, in a courtroom very often as a witness. Maybe some of you never have. I've done it on a couple of occasions. One was for a civil lawsuit. I've never been witnessing. Yeah, I was in a criminal one one time. It was kind of a, a family kind of court, actually. So it wasn't criminal like someone was going to go to jail, but it had custody ramifications. And it wasn't my family, but it was someone who asked me to be there. So anyway... I can relate in some way, but that doesn't happen often, if ever. So there's more to false witness than just showing up at a courtroom when you're called. It is, do I lie about people? Do, do I not say the truth when I should? Do I, do I stay quiet when I should speak up? Or do I speak up in the wrong way when I should have kept quiet? Gossip is also at epidemic levels in our culture. Just talk about people. Oh, by the way, it's not just voice, is it? It's not just what you say. It's, it's, it's oh, yeah, you said that. Oh, I'll give you this. <laughs> oh, did you hear about her? You hear about him? <laughs> Bearing false witness. It all fits under that gossip, all of that. Yeah, that's a hard one too, isn't it, God? Well, the last one on the list, boy, I'm glad we're done. Uh, number 10, to, don't desire what others have. The word for that is covet. It was pointed out to me a few years ago that um, this is, is really the only one that's a, directly a heart thing on the list. Like they're all heart, like Jesus said, he, he put them, he, he drove the commandments further in the, in the Sermon on the Mount to get to the heart level. But, but on the surface, what God gave Moses, you know, if you don't honor your mom and dad, people see that and it shows up. If you, if you kill someone, of course, people are going to find out, hopefully, and you're going to be brought to justice and, and cheating on your, on your husband or your wife or, or, or stealing. Uh, and when you lie in a court or just lie about people, that's going to catch up with you. But covet is all in here. Covet is, oh, I really want that. Oh, I want that so much. I need that. And then... The screens, once again, throw you advertising, telling you how much you need that, telling you that you really should want this, and telling you that you have to go get it. Have you noticed recently how many different commercials and industries tell you that you deserve things? Oh, you deserve it. Especially insurance. That little lizard. <laughs> Gecko, wherever he is. Oh, you deserve it. There's one he does that, too. He's talking to those motorcycle guys. And he starts crying, you deserve. Really? Do we? Why do we deserve good insurance? I don't know, because Gecko said so. I mean, and that it works because it appeals to, I got to have it. I want that. I need that. 
my, my good friend and many of your good friends, Paul Burke, shared with me quite a while ago about what, what, what helped him in his moments when just life wasn't going well at all and, and he just wanted to get out. And he said, in the 23rd Psalm, which is a very familiar psalm, it begins with this line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he paused right there. I shall not want. And that's a hard thing, especially when life isn't fair, especially when it seems like everybody else gets the breaks, especially when justice hasn't happened or injustice has happened. I shall not want. It doesn't mean we can't ask for and pray for good things. But when that good thing that you don't have yet and isn't coming possesses you, that's covet. Desiring what somebody else has, and I need it. I have to get it. I deserve it. Okay, God, how'd I do? Well, I hope you grade on a curve. Because if my relationship with you, Lord, is dependent upon how well I did with these, especially at the level that Jesus spoke about, then I'm in big trouble. Let's try just, just one different one. This one isn't as long. This is called the greatest commandment that I talked about with the kids a moment ago. So, so they, the Pharisees asked Jesus that question, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered correctly. He quotes from Deuteronomy, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So love God with all of myself. All right, how do I do that? My heart, my relational and emotional self. I bring all of me into my relationships. I don't, I don't, it doesn't mean I, I, I bear everything to everybody, but, but I am, I treat people the way Jesus treats them. I learn to love people the way Jesus loves them. And that's, that's relational. My heart, my emotions are important. So am I in, and this, is, this isn't a separate thing, okay? So, so when Jesus says, love God in these ways and then love your neighbor, it's not like, well, as long as you're loving God, you're okay. No, one flows to the other, and one feeds back into the other. So as I'm learning to love at home well and express love in my relationships at home, and express love in my relationships at work or in my neighborhood, wherever else it is, then I am loving God relationally, and that helps me to do that well, and that helps them to see what it looks like if they don't already know, or remind them that how to love God by loving other people. So there, there's that heart level, there's uh, to love God with all of my soul, my, my spiritual self, that's the way in which we are wired. We are wired for connection with God and with one another. And so my, and, and the soul, that part of me that that, that not just lives on forever, but the, at my core, my, my, very, my very self that, that, that God created in his image. It says in Ecclesiastes that the Lord has, has put eternity in our heart. We, we desire to, to transcend beyond the bounds of of this world, and, and there's something that, that a yearning within that calls for something bigger, something that lasts, something beyond the, the craziness of our world right now. 
And that's not just now, it's always been that way to one extent or another, but yeah, it's tough. And then I love God with my mind. Paul talks about this a lot, about um, the knowledge that we bring into this relationship. Have you thought about that knowledge with love? Like the depth of love, and we get into the end of the next chapter in Romans, we're really going to see that. Uh, it's, It's so powerful. It's beautiful. And so... Think about, understand, uh, focus on, make good decisions. All of that is about loving God with my mind. And then there is my strength, my body, my energy, the food that I eat, the rest that I have, the breath that I breathe. Every minute of every day helps me to love and understand the way of God in all the moments that I'm in because I have hopefully the strength to do it. So, so I'm loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then loving my neighbor as much as I love myself. Now, when I say love yourself, that doesn't mean you're arrogant or conceited or you put yourself first all the time and the world has to bow down to you. No, loving yourself means to to see yourself as God sees you, as his child. You are a child of God. In fact, I, I just want you all to say that right now. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. Say that again. I am a child of God. That is your core. That is your starting point. That is foundationally, relationally, that's the beginning. Too often, the church has taught people that your beginning point is you're messed up, you're a sinful jerk, and you better get it right or God's going to hate you for eternity. I'm sorry if you've received that message. That is not the gospel of the Jesus that I know. Yes, sin messes things up. Yes, we, we all inevitably commit sins and fall into sin, and they can grip us, they can addict us, they can hurt us, and, and all the mess that sin does, but that's not our starting point. Our starting point is that we are created in His image. We are His child, and sin breaks that relationship, but it doesn't end it. Do you see the difference there? Now, I can walk away from God, ignore God, and I believe in God my entire life if I want to, and that's sad, but the prodigal son in Jesus' beautiful parable when he's off living wildly and even when he ends up feeding pigs because there's nothing else he can make money doing and he's starving to death, during that whole time, the father, the God figure in the story, never once stopped loving him, ever. That's the place for all people, but we have to turn to experience it. It did him no good how much food was at his father's house if he's lying there with the pigs and refuses because of his own pride or how to, to, to put himself down in the mud at his heart and mind level like he's no good. He's not worthy of going back. No, you're not worthy. That's not the point. You're loved. Now get your butt home. That's the invitation that God has to all of us to know that we are his children. And so to love ourselves means to acknowledge before God who we really are at our core, our true self, and to acknowledge the sin that's, that's broken the relationship, that's clouded the relationship, the relationship that's gotten in the way that we can start to work on. But he always loves us the whole time. And if I hate myself, 
how can I love anybody? Because we are wired for a relationship with God and with others, the soul can't contain hate. All right, here's what I mean by that. So if, if, if I hate myself and I'm just no good and I beat myself up, then it doesn't stay there. It will inevitably flow out of me to other people. It has to. Because the soul doesn't want it, it has to get rid of it, so it gets spewed out. So the hate in me goes out to the people around me. Even the people that at some level I do love, but it, it, it hurts so much inside, it has to come out. And, and sometimes it's, it's, it also hurts, even if we're not saying or directly doing things, by withholding ourselves. Because then you are, you are not being there for the people that you do, you know you love, but you can't find the energy because you're so miserable inside that you don't want to even lift the finger or say the word or direct the kindness or give the hug or whatever it is. So that is also a reaction of hating yourself. So it's either the thing that you do by blurting out or in anger in some form or just withholding yourself. Either way, that's not what you're wired for. And so loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, as we learn to love and accept ourselves as a child of God, then I'm going to treat the people around me as fellow children of God. And I'm going to learn to love them more and deeper, and I'm never going to be perfect at it. So you know what, God, I'm thankful that this isn't really a, an SAT test where I'm going to get a score. But sometimes when we look at law... That's the way we think. This is still a command, God's most important command. So, so how do you measure love, by the way? How, how would you make a score for how much someone loves you? Why do you think we endlessly hear new love songs on the radio or, or new stories, movies, shows written about a love relationship? Because it is endless. There's endless ways to, to describe what we can't describe. And yet we want it deeply and desperately, and that's what God's given to us in Jesus Christ. So as I wrap this up today, I'm going to take that same passage of Scripture that was hard to read in the NIV, and I'm going to read it in a, a paraphrase. A paraphrase is the Word of God, that the Scriptures, that were put into someone's own words. Okay, so it's not a direct translation like it says this in the Greek, so here's the best English word, and here's how you construct it into a sentence so it makes sense. All right, that's what translators do. A paraphrase takes the essence of what it's saying and puts it into more understandable language. A man named Eugene Peterson wrote something that you might be familiar with called The Message. And I'm going to read that same passage from, um, from Romans 7, starting at verse 14, from the message, and it, it sounds so much more approachable and understandable. And I have it on the screen so you can follow along this way, or just listen. <clears throat> I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. 
Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself after all. I spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and gets the better of me every time. This is the human struggle. This is something we can all relate to. And the best news is that Paul goes on to describe in the 8th chapter now about what the solution to this dilemma is in Christ and how we can embrace the depth and the power of his love. I encourage you, as I said a moment ago, to read ahead in Romans 8 and and the whole chapter and um, meditate on it, pray about it, think about it, dig into your own study on it because it is such a beautiful and powerful passage and it begins, and we'll, we'll pick up next week, it begins with this. There is no more condemnation for you. That's how God sees you. You are not condemned. So even if my score in the Ten Commandments was like two and a half out of ten, there's no more condemnation. And even when I'm not loving the way I should and the way I know I want to, there's no more condemnation. And when I'm, my relationships are broken in my life and it's my fault... There's no condemnation. And I want to get those things right. I want to do better, and I will, but it's not doing better based on impressing God and getting more love from Him because I did that. Because the love is there constant all along if I do that or not. It's me who suffers, not God, by my disobedience. So this is what I hope that you'll pray about in your own life, that there's no more condemnation for you because of the deep, deep love of God. Father, may that love go forth in our lives and challenge us and change us, encourage us and inspire us in however your spirit wants to take us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and praise team will gather and lead us in our closing song.